message was given at Hope Church of Knoxville. For more information about Hope Church, please visit our website at hopeknox.com. Great to be with you this morning in the beautiful Knoxville area. You'll, know, you'll want to know that I'm not uh, a University of Kentucky fan, so you don't have to worry about that. <laughs> we live in Louisville, and uh, I guess I cheer for U of L, but I'm not sure why, um, with all their problems. But great to have you here uh, this morning. Uh, Adam uh, asked me to focus on the subject of covenants, right? Let's make sure we're on the same page. That's been the plan, and I've got uh, the screen here in the back. We'll maybe put up some uh, some diagrams. Uh, I warn you, I can't draw very well, right, so I have trouble drawing stick figures. Let's pray, and then we'll spend our time this morning um, in our Sunday school time uh, looking at these why the subject of covenants is important, and. Uh, then we'll go from there. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the opportunity to gather uh, as your people on the Lord's Day as we meet and remember all that you've done for us in our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that this is Resurrection Sunday, that our Lord uh, came and took on our human nature. Uh, He lived our life and died our death and was raised from the dead. And as we gather this morning, we remember all that you have done for us in him. And we pray that as we look at the covenants, as we're reminded that you are the covenant-making and keeping God, that you're the God who makes promises, that all of those promises have been brought to pass in fulfillment in the Lord Jesus, that you would encourage us, uh, even this week, to be those who trust you more, those who love you because you first loved us, and those who desire to make uh, Christ Lord of our lives, and those uh, to, um, to proclaim to those outside of him what it means to believe in him, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. So we commit our time to you, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, what time are we looking at the service? Okay, good. All right, very good. Give me some heads up if uh, we go too long. All right, covenants, right? So how much uh, have you been talking about covenants? Or? Basically, uh, I mean, we haven't really gone out of the subject, really. Okay, okay. All right, covenants, right? Covenant in uh, Scripture. Give you just some uh, beginning introduction as to why this subject is important. First and foremost, right, the God of the Bible is a covenant Making and keeping God, right? And uh, as we look at covenants, we come to understand something more of who he is, his promises to us, right? How all of his promises have been brought to fulfillment in Christ. And so the word covenant is a rich word in scripture. It's a beautiful word because it reminds us of who God is, right? Unlike the gods of peoples around us, right? We live in a society that believes in all kinds of different things and has all kinds of different conceptions of God. The God of the Bible is true to his promises. He's true to his character. He's revealed himself in his glorious plan of salvation as the one who has entered into covenant relationship with us. 
uh, our unique role as uh, image bearers and uh, redeemed creatures. I mean, all of this is tied to, to covenants, right? Covenants are also uh, important. I mean, they remind us of who God is and, uh, you know, his promises. But they're a way of connecting the whole Bible together, right? When you read, read your Bible, right, we've got uh, 66 books of our English Bibles, right? Uh, it's a big book. Um, you begin to think, how do all of these parts fit in terms of the whole? And uh, there's a number of ways that the Bible fits together. It's united. It's ultimately united in its overall message and, and uh, plan of salvation. Yet the covenants beautifully unite the Bible together. As we begin in Genesis, we go to Revelation, right? The covenants of God unfold. They center in Jesus Christ. They remind us that all of God's plans and purposes are centered in him. And the covenants are a very, very important way that uh, the whole Bible fits together, right? So as we think of how do we make sense of Genesis to Revelation, the covenantal unfolding is the way that we do that. It's not the only way, but uh, we like to say, I like to say that the, the covenants are sort of the the underpinning, right? They're the kind of substructure, right? So you build a house, right? You sort of need the foundation to all of your superstructure, your walls and your roof and everything else. Well, what undergirds it? What's the foundation underneath that? Well, it's the biblical covenants that uh, are given to us across the Bible that lead us from Old Testament to New Testament. They show us uh, what the plan of God is and how it's come to fulfillment and where we then are in that plan, right? So covenants are a crucial, crucial way of connecting uh, your Bible together, right? When you think of the covenants, the covenants are revelation, right? They reveal to us the one plan of God. So God has one plan. We know this from Scripture. Before the foundation of the world, and this is enough to make your mind swim, right? Think of eternity and God as the eternal God. Before the foundation of the world, he has a plan. The triune God has a plan. And that plan is then worked out in history. Right? First in creation, then ultimately in terms of the unfolding of history. And the covenants now unpack that plan, unfold that one plan. Right? And uh, that one plan then, step by step by step, is given to us, right? It's important to realize, and I'm sure you know this and have been taught well on this, right? Uh, the Bible doesn't come to us all at once, right? Uh, it doesn't just sort of fall down from heaven and there's, you've got a complete Bible, Genesis to Revelation. It comes to us over time, right? So the book of Hebrews begins in Hebrews chapter 1 by saying, In the past God spoke to, through the prophets to our forefathers in many ways, diverse manners, but in these last days, he's spoken in his son, right? So God's revelation has come to us over time, step by step. It's all one plan, but it hasn't occurred in all of one revelation, right? And each step that God lays down in terms of speaking through the prophets uh, gives us more detail, right? God is a great artist. Right? And he lays out his masterpiece, he doesn't give it to you all in one shot. It's sort of like a, 
mystery novel, a good mystery novel. Uh, if you read chapter one, you don't have the whole story in chapter one. It sets you up for chapter after chapter after chapter. And when you read the entire book, you then see something of the whole story. Well, that's what uh, God's revelation is. So step by step by step, God's plan unfolds. The covenants are the means by which that plan unfolds from Old Testament to New Testament. So it brings a unity to the Bible, and it helps us make sense of God's overall plan. Right? Now, when you think of the covenants, right, there's many covenants in Scripture. Right? Uh, primarily, we're going to focus on six. Right? These are the six key covenants that occur over time, right? that unfold God's plan. There's other covenants, the covenant of marriage, right? so Genesis 2 as a creation covenant or a marriage covenant. There's other covenants, you know, um, uh, when the nation of Israel goes into uh, the promised land, Joshua makes a covenant with the Gibeonites, right? And you read of other covenants like this. Well, we're not focusing on those per se. We're focusing on the main six covenants that take us from Genesis to Christ, right? And see how that unfolds, right? So let me put these up here. This is a good way of of doing this, the main six covenants that we're thinking of when we think of Genesis to the New Testament or Genesis to Revelation, right, is, and we'll put this in terms of um, the name of the covenant and its covenant sort of mediator. And these covenants seem to have uh, mediators that um, act on behalf of the people, and then ultimately those covenants come to fulfillment in Christ, right? So, if we begin with the first, sorry, <laughs> Let's see if that works. Let's see if the blue one works. Right, creation. Right, everything begins with creation. Genesis one, two, three, and so on. Right, creation. The first covenant we have is with Adam. Right, and not this Adam, but uh, the, old, the old, the old man, the one who caused all the problems in the world. Right. Uh, Adam, creation, right? We'll talk a little bit about this uh, in terms of a creation covenant, or this is how God establishes the beginnings of his plan. Then we read, in terms of the next covenant, would be the Noahic. Right? So here's a creation, you would say covenant, Adam is its kind of mediator or head. This is given to us in Genesis, we would say 1 and 2, and then we would even then say 3 through 5 or so. There's where you have the main section in Scripture where this is described for you. The fall is introduced, of course, changes the world drastically. Right? But that's where we read about this. Right? The Noahic covenant, right? we'll just put covenant, and then you have Noah is then given, and this is then Genesis, you know, basically 6 through 9. Right? So there's an advancement. This is, in fact, in Scripture, the first time the word covenant is used. Right? So the Hebrew word for covenant is used in describing the relationship that God has with Noah and then ultimately the human race. Right? Then we come to the Abrahamic, right? the Abrahamic, covenant, and we read of that really in Genesis 12, and that continues right through the rest of Genesis, spills over into 
Israel's covenant, because Israel's covenant is built off of Abraham. Right? So we'll just put Genesis 12, and we could say through 50, but we'll just do that for sake of, of point. But Abrahamic covenant, and then Abraham, we'll use his full name, Abraham plus the seed, right? That becomes the crucial sort of, he becomes the mediator of the covenant, but it's his offspring that becomes so important um, in Abrahamic covenant. And then you have Israel, right? So it's, this is called a number of things in scripture, right? Uh, the covenant that's given with the nation of Israel sometimes is called Mosaic covenant, right? And the reason it's called that is because of the crucial role that Moses plays as a kind of mediator. But it's also called Israel's covenant. New Testament often will refer to this covenant as the old covenant. And it does that as it contrasts it with the new, right? with that which comes in Christ. So we'll just simply put here, we could just say Exodus and beyond in the Old Testament. This old covenant uh, basically continues uh, to the nation of Israel all the way to the coming of Christ. Right? So you have... Exodus, throughout the Old Testament, we'll call it Old, the Old Covenant, but it's ultimately Israel, and then Moses becomes a pivotal figure. But really, the covenant is one that's really made with the nation. Right? We'll see that in a moment. But Moses serves a very, very, very important role in getting it all going, establishing all kinds of, of uh, important points, and then it gets picked up and continues in the life of the nation of Israel. And then you have the last one that will come in the Old Testament, you have Davidic. Right? Davidic, and then you have the important role of David plus his sons. Right? That's crucial. David and the kings. Right? The king is everything in the Old Testament. Right? And the Davidic covenant is a different covenant. It's given to David and his offspring, his sons. It's built on the old, right? David is under the same covenant that the nation of Israel is under, yet there's an advancement, there's a revelation that's going on in terms of the important role of David, right? So David and the sons, and then in the Old Testament, there is a promise of a new covenant, right? And you see that in the Old Testament prophets, right? You see that in every prophet. But there's some famous, famous uh, passages that give us this. The famous, probably the most famous one, because it's quoted in the New Testament in detail, is Jeremiah 31. This is quoted in the book of Hebrews uh, a number of times, but full, lengthy quotation uh, in Hebrews 8. Most of the chapter of Hebrews 8 is a quotation from Jeremiah 31, right? So those are the covenants, and all of those are introduced to us in the Old Testament. Right? Now, in the Old Testament, this is introduced to us in prophetic anticipation. And the New Testament then shows up and basically announces that what the prophets looked forward to in the coming of the New Covenant now has arrived. Right? And the one who has brought that is Jesus. Lord Jesus has brought that. So we would say, he then is the mediator, right? Jesus is the mediator of the new covenant. Now in the Old Testament, that will be anticipated 
in kind of prophetic announcement. The New Testament makes that explicit, right? So those are the main covenants. So we have here, now, the passage that's associated, Davidic, 2 Samuel 7. It is a, it's also found in Chronicles. But this is the historic place uh, in Samuel where God enters into covenant relationship with David. Okay. Now these are the six covenants, right? And it's important to see how these covenants relate to one another. Right? So I've already said just in some introductory points before, what I would encourage you to think of is as you think of these covenants, think of all of these as the one plan of God. Right? This is the one plan of salvation that the Bible gives to us across history. All of God's covenants will reach what we would say their fulfillment in the new covenant. Right? So the Lord Jesus Christ is the one who will bring to pass all of these previous covenants. Right? So in the New Testament, as he's described, it's not accidental that the way the New Testament described Jesus is built off of all of these previous covenants. Right? So you open up the beginning of Matthew's Gospels, and it begins with a genealogy. This is the genealogy, right, of Jesus, son of Abraham, right? son of David. You think, oh, why, why are those two mentioned? Well, because you have an Abrahamic covenant, you have a Davidic covenant. Uh, what is Jesus described in the New Testament? He's described as the last Adam. He's described as Abraham's son, right? Matthew 1 and other places. He's described as the true Israel, right? A better than Moses, right? A greater than David, a greater than Solomon. I mean, all of this description uh, of the Lord Jesus is picked up from the Old Testament, and it is built off all of these covenants, right? Now, as you read the Bible, right, as you put the Bible together, it's important, and this is just because what I've already said before, the Bible comes to us over time. Right? So it's very, very important to treat each of these covenants in their context in the Bible. Right? So you always read, learn when you study the Bible, right? Uh, you always read the Bible in context, right? Never take it out of context, right? That's what people do when they make the Bible say anything they want to say, they just rip it out of context, right? Well, you don't want to do that, so when you read in context, right, you want to read about this first covenant in its Genesis context. Right? And the same goes for each of these other covenants as well. You read Noah, you read Genesis 6 to 9, and then you place Noah in the context of where he's in Genesis, right? And the same with Abraham, Moses, Old Covenant, Davidic, and New Covenant, right? So each of them you read on their own. That's why I have these lines here, right? So you can observe uh, various things about these covenants in their context. But because Scripture is an unfolding revelation, right, you need to then, if you are to read later covenants in context, right, you have to read them in terms of what came before them, right? Makes sense? So you never read chapter two of a book 
without reading chapter one. If you do, you'll, especially if it's an unfolding book, right? It needed to go together. Or you don't read chapter 10 and say, I'm going to ignore chapter one to nine, right? So as you read about Noah, the Noahic covenant, you don't just read Genesis 6 to 9, you place Genesis 6 to 9 in terms of what came before it. And eventually, uh, and that's true of each of these covenants, right? So Abrahamic, Abraham in Genesis 12 just doesn't show up. He's part of a storyline, right? So Genesis 1 to 11 will be absolutely essential to figure out what Abraham's doing. Right? Sounds simple. But people always don't follow that nice, easy, simple rule. And then when you get to Israel, in terms of their role, you can't understand Israel without connecting it to Abraham and Noah and ultimately Adam. Now notice what's going on here, right? Because the beginning of the Bible begins here in creation, everything eventually... This is an important rule for not only putting your Bible together, but a lot of other things as well. Everything goes back to creation. Right? Ever notice that? Right? The grounding to a lot of things in terms of a Christian view of the world starts in creation. Right? All of God's relationship that he has with us and the development of that relationship generally goes back to creation order. Right? Think of all of the debates that we're seeing today on um, human relationships and male and female and transgender and all these kind of things, right? All this uh, nonsense that's around. Uh, what's the problem here, right? Well, ultimately, it's denying creation order, right? It's denying, and then everything else is built. So all of these previous covenants, right? So we read each covenant in their context, but then we place them in terms of because it's an unfolding revelation in terms of what's preceded it, right? So you look at each covenant on its own, but never isolated from what's before it. That's very, very important. What I would suggest for you, and I'll just throw this out here, um, is that in the Old Testament, as you work from creation to Noah, to Abraham, to Old, to David, in some sense, the Davidic covenant is what we would say in the Old Testament, the epitome, right? It's, the, it's where all of sort of these other covenants are leading, yet, right, there's going to be a major, major problem that shows up in the Old Testament. Everything leads you to David. This is why the Davidic kings and Solomon, they're so important in the Old Testament. All of these previous covenants are leading us to David, but a major problem comes is that David and Solomon, let alone all those other kings, are all miserable, miserable failures. Right? So that everything leads you to David. All of these previous covenants build on one another. In some sense, this is the epitome. Yet David and his sons are terrible. Right? For the most part, right? Um, in the north... Right? You have the north and south divide. Uh, in the northern tribes, right, those ten tribes of the north that eventually get destroyed, and uh, they eventually get mixed up with the nations and become Samaritans and everything else, right? I mean, there's not one good king. Not one. Right? In the south, 
There's maybe five, <laughs> five or six good kings. Uh, most of them are failed. Now, of course, that's going to be very, very important as the prophets will then anticipate a new covenant of a better king, of a better Israel, of a better Adam. Now, that's, of course, setting us up for how the prophets will anticipate the coming of Christ. Right? He will come and he will not disobey he will not fail. He will not be miserable like the previous ones before. He will be the one who does the will of the Father. He will be the one who does it perfectly and so on. Right. So this is how eventually the Bible will tell us the story of Jesus. Right? So these covenants need to be read on their own terms, right, in their own context, and what comes before it. And if we're going to be Christian readers and put the whole Bible together, it's very, very important to also then, right, first, Bible and its, you know, covenant is in its own context, how later covenants refer back to the earlier covenants, and then how all of them come to fulfillment in the new covenant. So how does creation ultimately anticipate Christ in new creation? How is the Noahic covenant fulfilled in the new covenant? How is the Abrahamic fulfilled in the new covenant? How is the old fulfilled in the new covenant? How is the Davidic? Right? So notice what's going on here, right? As you are reading your Bible for devotions, right? You're trying to understand how you understand the Bible, how you apply it to your life, right? You have to always, especially when it comes to the Old Testament, right? Read the Old Testament in its context, see how it fits as an unfolding story and how all of it comes to fulfillment in Christ. And then, from there, we then say, now I apply to my life in light of this, right? Now, we do this with, say, the book of Leviticus, right? Um, you had study in Leviticus lately? Okay. Um, book of Leviticus, right? How do you apply the book of Leviticus to your life? Well, you have to do it carefully, right? 2 Timothy chapter 3 makes it very, very clear, right? 2 Timothy chapter 3, the Apostle Paul will say, all scripture is God's breathed out word, right? And in that context, Paul's primarily referring to the Old Testament, right? Because the New Testament is being written, right? So he says to Timothy, all scripture is God breathed, and it is profitable for doctrine and reproof and correction, instruction. So that means all of the Old Testament is profitable for us. Well, how is it profitable for us? It's profitable for us in seeing how it is now given to us in its context and how it's ultimately brought to fulfillment in Christ. So that when we read Leviticus, we apply Leviticus. You don't just ignore Leviticus. You apply Leviticus to your life today but you apply it not as it was given to us in this context, you understand that context, but you apply it to it as it has now been brought to fulfillment in Christ. So your obeying Leviticus is by believing the gospel, right? by believing in Jesus. Now that's not just some strange move that we made here. That's how the plan of God unfolds. And all of the Bible now is applied to us in that way. And the covenants are crucial in laying that out for us, right? So, Here's the six covenants that will unfold God's one plan 
Each of these covenants will build upon one another. You should not view these covenants as self-contained, isolated, sealed off, uh, and no relation to one another. No, 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 no. They're all part of one unfolding plan, which in the Old Testament reach their pinnacle in David, yet there's a great problem here. David and the sons fail, which anticipates the coming of a greater son, a greater king, a greater lord. And that's ultimately what the new covenant is, and that's what we live under, right? Where are we in God's plan? Well, we're not technically in any of these areas. They all in impact us, but ultimately we are under the new covenant, right? And so we live in light of God's plan now brought to fulfillment in Christ, right? So that's the big way that you sort of think through the covenants and have to now step by step unpack them. So let me give you a couple of points here in terms of, and this could take a long time to develop, so I'm just being the cliff notes on this, right? in terms of uh, some priming the pump here, um, and then uh, your faithful pastors and elders will just develop this at a great length. Right? So um, let's think of some crucial areas tied to each of these covenants, how they're functioning and how they're being brought to fulfillment in Christ, right? Now, as I said, with Genesis, with creation, right? So you have your Bibles. Just We can only refer to a couple of things here. Um, Genesis 1 and 2 establishes the entire foundation framework for the whole Bible, right? It's not accidental that the Bible ends uh, with a new creation, right? So you go from old creation to new creation, from Adam to a greater last Adam in Christ who brings a whole new world. I mean, that's the whole Bible is, can be summarized in that way, right? In Genesis, right, there's all kinds of things to talk about, but the importance of creation and so on. But what's really, really crucial here is to speak, first of all, right, of our, our role as image, right? And that is tied to Adam. But it has implications for all of us, right? So that as we read in Genesis 1, uh, 26 and 27, all these famous uh, passages here, right? We are given, let us make man in our image, in our likeness. Let him rule over the fish of the sea, birds of the air, livestock over all the earth, creatures that move along the ground. So God created man in his own image. In the image he created him, male and female, he created them. God bless them, be fruitful, increase in number, and ultimately rule over the earth, right? We don't take seriously enough right, uh, the important role that the Bible gives to humans, right? We live in a society that dehumanizes us. The more you walk away from a Christian view of the world, the sad truth is the more humans get dehumanized, right? It's only a Christian view that has gives humans incredible value, right? We are presented in Genesis here as the whole notion of image is that we are God's representatives, right? So image is very much tied to this notion of a kind of rep, right? We're representatives, and that's epitomized first in Adam, right? So that we are called to be God's representatives in the world to rule over all creation. No other creature... Not even angels, right? 
Angels don't rule over anything in this world. They're, made, they're amazing creatures we see in Scripture. This will be the argument of the author of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 1 and 2. Right? Angels are just simply ministering servants. They're powerful. They're you know, quite amazing in their own right, but they were never created to rule over this world. Right? And that rule was given to us, male, female, that you had the establishment of marriage, family, society. I mean, all of this is so foundational. So that our role then is to be God's kings, little kings and queens. Right? To rule over. I mean, that's a whole lesson in itself. Psalm 8, right? You can reflect on that uh, this afternoon. Psalm 8 is a celebration of our incredible role in creation. Well, that's where the Bible begins. Image, and of course, this is eventually tied to Adam, right? Adam is the first man. Eve is created. Genesis 2 unpacks that, right? Uh, marriage is established. Uh, their role, and of course, everything changes in Genesis 3, but this, this foundational role becomes pivotal in the entire Bible, right? In fact, if you read uh, all the way through the whole Bible and you eventually get to the New Covenant, Hebrews chapter 2 picks up Psalm 8 and will speak of Christ as last Adam, restoring us to that creation role. Salvation is, yes, first and foremost, forgiveness of sins. We are made right with God, but we are made right with God to be something. Right? We are made right with God to ultimately be restored to image-bearing, right? to be restored to um, our role in creation, to be restored to our rule over this world. Right? Eventually, when Christ comes again, his people will rule. Right? They'll rule with him, and be restored to that creation role. So all of this is bound up with this first initial role of, of Adam, an image. Right? Notice also in this theme of rest, which is very, very important as well. Right? So we have our role established in creation, Genesis 2, verses 1 to 3. So the sixth day gives us our unique role. The seventh day really is where the whole week is going. It's very interesting. You've probably noticed this before, but on each of the six days, there's a common refrain that happens after every day. Morning, evening, first day. Morning, evening, second day. Morning, evening, third All the way through the six days. On the seventh day, that's not there. And you say, well, why? Well, it's sometimes hard to know, right? To, you know, to be dogmatic on it. My suggestion would be, and I think this is borne out through the rest of the Bible, is why is God entering into rest? Well, clearly it's not because he's tired. Right? It's not because, you know, he's, you know, uh, he needs to take a good sleep or something. No, rest in Scripture is ultimately identified with relationship, right? especially covenant relationship. Uh, eventually, uh, enjoyment, right? Uh, eventually, um, as the nation of Israel gets into the promised land, they are to have rest and so on and so on. Jesus gives us rest in the New Testament, right? So I would say that in, in the seventh day, there's no morning and evening because what God's doing here is he's now entering into relationship with, enjoyment of us, his creation. Right? There's a sense in which there is an unending sense to that. Now, of course, Genesis 3 will change everything. Right? Genesis 3 will bring no rest. Genesis 3 will bring the absence, and of course it's pictured, of the removal from the garden. 
right? You have God present with his people in Eden, yet they're removed. And of course, the whole story of the Bible is getting us back into God's presence, isn't it? It's picked up in the Old Covenant with the land and with the temple and tab you know, tabernacle temple. Ultimately, it comes to fulfillment in Jesus, who is the new temple, who now brings the spirit, who brings rest, who brings salvation. I mean, these themes are, are there, but rest is very, very important. So initially, right, God is at rest with his image bearers, right? You have the important role of Eden. Eden isn't just, you know, a place that's interesting to find on the map type of thing. Uh, it's a place where Adam and Eve are placed. They're to take that Eden sanctuary and expand it to the uttermost parts of the earth. Right? That was their dominion role, which they failed to do, and they're removed from that. So the role of Eden, it's not accidental that as you get to the end of the book of Revelation, everything is described in terms of a new creation, the presence of God ultimately is described as coextensive with the entire creation. Right? It's like Eden has been expanded to the entire universe. Right? Those are the images that are built off of this unique role. Right? You also have in Genesis 2 the theme of obedience. Right? Adam is given a command. Obey. You can have fruit of all of the trees, right? To your food to eat, but you must not eat of that one tree. So there's a command that's given. God makes an absolute demand. Now that makes sense. God's the Lord. We're his creatures. That theme of obedience runs through the entire Bible, right? What does God demand of us? That we love him. That we trust him. That we believe him. That we obey him. Right? Obedience it's ultimately tied to love, trust, and, and, and confidence in God, right? We as creatures are to obey. Obey is not a slavish, slavish kind of obedience. No, it's because he is the Lord and we want to obey. And Adam disobeys. And of course, Genesis 3 then, this relationship that's established, this covenant relationship, Adam is removed. And what do you have? Thankfully, Genesis 3.15 gives us an initial promise. And notice in this initial promise, right, in Genesis 3.15, God is now in the curse that's come upon the world. He could have brought just judgment, right? Instead, he says that he will put enmity between the serpent and the woman, between her offspring and yours. He will crush your head. You will strike his heel. What is being picked up here, right, is that there will be a human offspring, that's important. Why would there be a human offspring? Well, because of the unique role of image bearers. Right? From the human race will come one who will crush the serpent's head. It will come from us. Well, of course, in the Old Testament, it's like, who's that going to be? Right? Eventually, we all know the end of the story. Ultimately, it's Christ. But notice, there becomes the rhyme and reason as to why the incarnation is necessary. Why is it necessary for God the Son to become a man? Well, he has to fulfill this role, right? He has to undo what Adam did. He has to come now as the obedient son who loves to do the Father's will. I mean, all of these ways are get picked up, and all of this is grounded first in this first man who brings disaster, right? Later on, the Apostle Paul 
will reflect upon the most two most important people of the whole Bible. Right? You've got a lot of important people in the Bible, but you can boil them down to two ultimately. Romans 5 will say, in Adam, all die. In Christ, right, those who have faith are made alive. Right? So you've got Adam and Christ. Why is that the most important? Because the Bible begins with Adam and ultimately culminates in Christ who comes as seed of the woman who undoes Adam's failure and brings forgiveness of sins and a new world. Right? Now, in between then, Right? Since this is the foundational role, all of the other covenants are being built off of this starting covenant. Noahic, right? Noahic is basically a very, very similar covenant to creation. Right? Noah is like, right? He is like a little, or we would say another Adam. Right? Why would we say that he is like another Adam? Well, he's given the same mandate, isn't he? Fruitful, multiply. Now, it's a, it, the context is different. It's a fallen world. But God wipes away the human race. Out of this one man now, he's like another Adam, God is going to bring Genesis 3.15 promise. In many ways, Genesis 3.15 promise now runs across the entire Bible. Who is going to be this seed of the woman? Well, First, it's got to come now through Noah. Now, the Noahic Covenant functions in a whole host of important ways as well. The Noahic Covenant also establishes a, a way that God is going to operate from now on with the world. Instead of wiping away sinners and starting over again, he's going to keep two humanities here. Right? He's going to keep people of God. He's going to keep the people of this world. Right, where does that come from? Well, that comes from the Noahic Covenant. Until the end of the age, we are going to have uh, a fallen humanity here. Right? Until the end of the age, you will also have the people of God living side by side with the fallen humanity, and we live in that same age. And that will end when Christ comes again. So Noah is picking up this creation promise. Now, what's Abraham doing here? Summarizes quickly, right? Abraham now must be understood in light of these first covenants here, right? The Abrahamic promise, right? God takes now out of the human race. One man, one family. Why is, what's, how is Adam, how is Abraham functioning here? Well, Abraham is functioning like another Adam, isn't he? Except now it's narrowed to one family, one people. And out of Abraham will come an offspring. Well, what's that offspring tied back to? Well, it's tied back to Genesis 3.15, isn't it? Out of Abraham will come an offspring that in the context of Genesis, Abraham's offspring will ultimately bring salvation for the world. Where do you get that from? Well, it's because he said in the context of the world. Right? He said in the context of Adam, who is the head of the human race, Noah, who now functions in that way. So Abraham, this is why Abraham is so important in Scripture. Abraham, the whole hope of the world rests in Abraham and his offspring. Without that offspring of Abraham, this is why you have in the Abraham stories, right, in Genesis, Abraham's existence is always being threatened. Right? 
member of Bimelech and takes Sarah and is like, you know, well, first of all, he can't even have a child, which is threatened. I mean, if all the hope rests at Abraham and there's no child, then how are we going to have salvation? And then, of course, you have Abimelech and others, and then you have Genesis 22, where you sacrifice, and Abraham's thinking, um, if I don't have this Isaac, then how are we going to have salvation here? And the author of Hebrews tells us that, and there's clues of this even in Genesis, he tells us that Abraham reasons God's going to have to raise him from the dead. Why? Because the God who makes promises will keep those promises, and through Abraham, there's got to come ultimately a promise seed, right? In the Abrahamic covenants, you have anticipation of later covenants. Genesis 17 says, from Abraham will come kings. And you say, where does that happen in the Bible? Well, eventually it happens in the Davidic covenant. Right? So the Abrahamic covenant is situated in the Old Testament through him and his offspring. Ultimately, what Adam lost is restored. And this is the important role that you see with Israel. Right? Israel as a nation. Right? Israel is a, is, a, is, a, is a corporate people who are what? The offspring of Abraham. They're the ones who will bring salvation to this world. Through them will come the Genesis 3.15 promise, right? That's, what you, that's the role of Israel. Notice Israel in Exodus 4, what are they called, right? Israel is called a special designation. They are called the Son of God. Now, why are they called that? Well, Son of God is very close to notions of representation. They are to represent God. They are to be God's kings and queens in the promised land, right? Looks a lot like Eden. They are to be those who are holy unto the Lord. They are to reveal to the nations that God is keeping from the Noahic covenant, right? He is there to be an example of what it means to be image bearers and a holy people and so on and so on. Of course, they don't do a great job at that. Uh, yet they are a son of God and out of this old covenant. The old covenant is not just the Ten Commandments. Right? The old covenant is an entire package that gives you the sacrificial system, that gives you the development of prophets and priests, and ultimately the anticipation of the king. In the book of Deuteronomy, even before they get into the promised land, Moses is already telling the nation of Israel, when you go into the promised land and you want a king, this is Deuteronomy 17, then this is what the king's supposed to be like. He's already anticipating the Davidic covenant. Right? And that already has been anticipated with Abraham. So you can see these things are connected together so that Israel is the son of God who's to bring God's rule to the world, but they fail. And the Davidic covenant... Right? The Davidic sons, interesting here, the Lord is going to act as a father to the king. And the king is called God's son. Right? We see this later picked up in Psalm 2, where God will speak about putting his Davidic king on his holy hill, and he calls him the son. Right? Now that you sort of say, boy, that sounds a lot like the New Testament. Well, it does. Because Jesus ultimately is the fulfillment of this Davidic king. He's the one who comes as the one who's not just a human son. He is that. But he is the eternal son of the father. Right? So the whole father-son relationship is developed off of 
these covenant kinds of unfolding, right? So the Davidic kings, 2 Samuel 7, will be the ones who will ultimately take the role of Israel, right? They're called the Son of God. That's what Israel was called. They will take that role, and they will rule the world, right? Let's just look at one last passage, and then we'll bring this to an end. The book of Psalms, Psalm 72. It's very interesting here. Psalm 72 describes the Davidic covenant and the king. And notice, and all of this is never realized in the Old Testament. It's already looked, it's looked forward to in terms of the new. But notice when Psalm 72 is a psalm of Solomon, he speaks about the Davidic king. We know that from verse 1. Endow the king with your justice, the royal son with your righteousness. There's the king. How much will this king rule? Well, verse 8, he will rule from sea to sea, from the river to the ends of the earth. He doesn't rule just over the nation of Israel. He ultimately rules over the whole world. In fact, verse 11, all kings will bow down to him. All nations will serve him. Now, it's very interesting. That sounds a lot like the Abrahamic. In the Abrahamic covenant, right, from the seed of Abraham will come the one who will bring blessing to the nations, right? Well, here's now the king who rules over the nations. And notice in verse 17, long may his name endure. That's language that comes right out of Genesis, the Abrahamic covenant. All nations will be blessed through him, verse 17. They will call him blessed. What we're saying here is this is why I say the Davidic covenant is the epitome in the Davidic king. In the Old Testament, the Davidic king was to ultimately bring God's rule to the entire world. He was to be what Israel was supposed to be. He was to be ultimately what Adam was supposed to be. He was, that's why often in the wisdom literature, right, uh, Solomon is larger than life, right? Well, because he's supposed to have all wisdom. Yet, the historic Solomon, the historic David, didn't have any, I mean, they had very little of it, right? Eventually, David ends up in terrible episode to describe in terms of his death. He ends up shivering to death. Um, you know, he's trying to be warmed up by some concubines and this type of thing. The great David ultimately ends six feet under. Well, what about all of God's promises, right, of a great king, of ruling the world? Well, this is what the prophets will pick up and say, that king is still coming. That king will be Davidic, will be Israel, will be Abrahamic, will be last Adam, but he will come and not fail. He will be human, yet he will be the Lord. And that's precisely how the New Testament describes the coming of Christ. And when he comes, he brings salvation. He brings judgment. He brings God's rule. Right? And that's how these covenants are unfolding the one plan of salvation that gets totally centered in Christ. Right? That's how you keep your Bible together in terms of a Christ-centeredness legitimately. Right? We don't just read things out of context. The whole storyline of the covenants are leading us to the coming of a great king. And this is who Jesus is, the great Lord, the one who brings rest, the one who brings uh, who is prophet, priest, and king, right? Even Christ's work is described in that way. All of that's built off of the Old Testament, isn't it? He's the great priest. He's the great king. He's the great prophet, right? He fulfills these roles perfectly, right? Well, that's a very, very cliff note 
<laughs> treatment of the covenants. But there's all kinds of good material to read on uh, the covenants, and it's a way that connects Genesis to Revelation together. Get your mind around the glory of God's plan of salvation and where we fit in that. And you and I, let me just finish with this thought here, you and I, when we think of all of God's plan in history, did you know that you and I are in the second best place in all of history? Well, the best place to be in all of history is when Jesus comes again. Right? He finishes and he culminates everything. But we're in the second best place because we live in light of all of the hopes and anticipation of these previous covenants, right? We live under the new covenant. We live in light of Christ's coming. We live in a better time than Moses ever lived. So if you have dreams to go back to Moses and see Moses, that's nothing compared to what we have now in Christ, right? So we are at the second best place in all of human history, and we are to live our lives now in anticipation of the coming, the second coming of the Lord, in light of all that he's accomplished, people then of hope, of confidence, of those who know in a greater way that God keeps his promises, right? God, not one of God's promises fail, but they're all found for us in Christ and to us, the church. Right? So let's pray and we'll finish. Heavenly Father, even in this short way of looking at the biblical covenants, May it uh, lead to us thinking about these areas uh, in greater detail in the coming days and months and, and years. Uh, help us to glory in you, uh, Father, Son, and Spirit, uh, and help us to glory in your Son, our Lord Jesus, who has accomplished all of these promises for us in his life, death, and resurrection. As we go to our worship service, may he receive the worship and praise that is due his name. And may you encourage us this day to be your faithful people living in the world, awaiting his coming again. And we ask this for his name and for his sake. Amen. And be back, we'll say at 11.10 or 11.15.